This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, and Jim Hightower. New York Times with another great editorial uh, about dark money and the influence of money in politics. And they're explaining how President Obama actually does want to address a part of it, thanks God. Um, but, uh, of course, the Republicans are fighting him. So let's explain. President Obama is reported to be considering an important break on the torrent of dark money already flooding the 2016 presidential campaign, an executive order requiring federal contractors to disclose their donations to political candidates. Mr. Obama should immediately sign such an order. This is the editorial board of the New York Times taking a position on this. This position is nearly inarguable. Should we let federal contractors secretly give money to politicians? The politicians then decide who's going to get the federal contracts. That would be the most obvious bribery of all time. But it's legalized, and now they want to keep it in the dark. So President Obama is saying, hey, look, I'm not going to make it illegal. I can't. The Supreme Court says giving a politician money is not illegal. It's your, you're just talking to them. It's speech. <laughs> okay. I don't understand why they can't just put it in their pockets. They can give it to them in campaign donations. They can hire them later and give it directly in their pockets. They can, um, give it to their independent expenditures. The only thing I, it, those are all speech. But if you say, oh, here, go buy a fur coat with it. Oh, wait a minute. That's a bribe. No, they're all bribes. They're all bribes. And you know that, that there's something wrong when you're doing it in the dark. If it was perfectly okay and wonderful free speech that you wanted to exercise, why aren't you doing it in public? Why are you doing it in secret? So President Obama wants to address a small part of this just for federal contractors. Now, if you're a Republican and you've been crying about crony capitalism for all this time, I mean, you would be ecstatic about this, right? I mean, this is exactly how crony capitalism happens. A politician becomes corrupted, gives federal contracts, and, and you don't even get to find out about it. And they don't win it based on the free market. They win it based on campaign contributions. Perfect case of crony capitalism. So what are Republicans doing? They're saying, no, we want to make sure that President Obama cannot do this. We want to make sure that it stays secret. Wait a minute. President Obama's in charge of the executive branch now. Wouldn't that give him so much more power that he could take those donations for his own political party and dole out favors? Yes, but we don't care. Because we love dark money. We love when it's done in secret. Because secretly, we take more bribes than anyone else. That's the Republican Party position in reality. So more from the New York Times. Sunlight said uh, Justice Anthony uh, Kennedy would let citizens see whether elected officials are in the pocket of so-called money interests. Now, that was Justice Kennedy during Citizens United. In this terrible Citizens United decision, the guy who wrote the decision said, Nah, it's okay, because we're going to find out who's giving the money, so it won't be a problem. There'll be sunlight on it. Except they immediately turned off the sun. <laughs> the Republicans did. They're like, oh, thanks a lot about that thing where they can give us money. Yeah, we're going to keep that secret. What happened, Supreme Court? I thought you said it was going to be out in the open. Why don't you make a ruling about that? Oh, here's what the Supreme Court said about that. Yeah, no, now they're letting them do it in secret. <laughs> they were t- yeah, so they don't give a damn. All right, in votes earlier this month, the House Appropriations Committee's Republican majority quietly inserted an amendment in a spending bill that would block the Securities and Exchange Commission from crafting a rule requiring public companies to open up to their stockholders and voters about their political spending. Okay, 
So they're saying if you are an owner of a company, you're a shareholder in a company, the company should be able to keep their political donations secret from you too. <laughs> what the fuck? Wait a minute, I'm the owner of the company. Nope, sorry, not going to tell you who I spent your money on. But that, as a stockholder, that's of, of course that's my right. I own the, I'm, I own shares in the company. The executive doesn't own the company. You're you're running the company on behalf of the owners, the stockholders. That's capitalism. It's capitalism 101. Nope, not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell the public. I'm not going to tell the, the people who own the company. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm just going to do the bribes and secrets. That's what the Republicans are pushing for. The guy's in favor of the free market. Another amendment that the Republicans proposed would stop the Internal Revenue Service from issuing an overdue rule uh, reigning in social welfare organizations that do not have to disclose donors under current IRS rules and are increasingly misused as big money conduits for partisan political activity. A third would protect government contractors from disclosing who they're showering with money. Every one of these is, no, 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 don't tell the public, don't tell the public who's giving us money. But I thought you said it was free speech. Free speech is out in the open. Oh, I see, you want to do it in secret, because you do have bad intent. Every single one of these by uh, amendments proposed by the Republicans is to keep the money dark, to keep their donors secret, because you know that it's the billionaires who want their taxes cut. It's the uh, companies who want their, their regulations cut so they can pollute, so they can take more chances if they're the banks, so they can speculate more. That's why they're doing God. Wolf-pack.com, man. We lost our democracy. They're, they're spitting in our eye. Not only are the politicians getting bribed, they won't even tell us who's bribing them. Even though the Supreme Court, even as Citizens United said, well, you got to at least let them, let them know who's bribing you. They said, no, we don't. We're not going to listen to any rules. They're a runaway oligarchy, man. Wolf-pack.com. It's time to go to their house, okay? We got to go fix this, and we can do it. You get an amendment. Every generation of Americans has got an amendment. Accept us. Up and at them, up and at them. Let's go clean up the government, man. Let's be the new founding fathers and the founding mothers of this country. Let's bring our democracy back. Okay, you want to see the results, by the way, of this corruption? The winners in the 11 most competitive Senate races netted more than $131 million in dark money. You know, people often talk about, oh, the Koch brothers back in 2012, they spent a lot of money, but Obama won anyway. <laughs> Big money doesn't win. No, no, no. Big money has trouble in presidential races because there's so much free media. President Obama just can go on TV and put out his message. He doesn't need to buy the ads. Okay. Now, he still does. He spends a ton of money and raised a billion dollars on his own anyway. It's not like he didn't have money. He had plenty of money, right? Uh, but what they don't tell you about is 2014. In 2014, when there wasn't big media paying attention, there wasn't a presidential race, that $131 million made all the difference. Koch brothers had a 95% effectiveness rate in 2014. Because money buys you advertising, it buys you a giant megaphone, and allows you to trick people by pretending that you're on their side. Now, And then you never tell people who actually paid for those ads and who did the tricking. That's why the Republicans want to keep this secret. Wolf-pack.com, man. If you love our democracy, if you love America, let's go get it back.
You may think what's happening across this country, like Scott Walker's efforts in Wisconsin, to strip rights from working people and give multi-billion dollar tax breaks to corporations is something new. It's not. It actually was started more than 100 years ago by the stroke of one man's pen. His name was John Chandler Bancroft Davis. I tell his story in the first chapter of my book, Unequal Protection. In 1886, Bancroft was the court reporter for the United States Supreme Court. And he was, on the, he was on the job while that court was hearing arguments in a case called Santa Clara County versus the Southern Pacific Railroad. Although at the time, the Chief Justice, Morrison R. McWaite, thought it was just about a simple, boring tax issue, that case would ultimately redefine America forever. If it wasn't for that case, Scott Walker wouldn't even be governor now because corporate money couldn't have helped him get elected. The case centered on whether or not the, the corporation, the Southern Pacific Railroad, owed Santa Clara money six years worth of unpaid property taxes. Again, just all really mundane tax stuff. Ultimately, the court let stand a lower California court decision because they said it was the state of California's issue, not a federal issue, case closed. Not a constitutional debate. You can read it online on the website of the Supreme Court itself. Nothing there about corporations being able to elect governors. But here's where everything went a little crazy. As one of its six defenses in the case, the Southern Pacific Railroad made an unusual argument. They tried to argue that personhood rights under the 14th Amendment passed just 20 years earlier after the Civil War to grant slaves full citizenship and equal protection under the law, that those rights should also apply to corporations. Why? Because corporations had always been called artificial persons under the law, while humans had always been called natural persons. And the 14th Amendment only says to any person. So the railroad said that to tax them differently in one county than in another was the same as saying that a black person could be free in the north but a slave in the south. In this case, Chief Justice Waite explicitly told the lawyers for the Southern Pacific Railroad that his court would not rule on the issue of corporate personhood and they ought to move on with their arguments. But a year later, the Chief Justice was mortally ill with congestive heart failure after the case was decided. And the case, as I said, was not, did not decide that corporations have rights as persons. And the court reporter, J.C. Bancroft Davis, was a very wealthy and powerful man, son of the former governor of Massachusetts, former president of the New Newburgh and New York Railroad, and apparently good buddies with all the other railroad millionaires. Keep in mind, at that time, these guys were the Bill Gateses of their day. They were literally the richest men in the world. Now, one of the things that Supreme Court reporters do, in addition to chronicling the case, is to write a Cliff Notes version of the case. This short summary has no legal standing whatsoever. It's just there to make it easier for lawyers to find in the future when they're looking for a case. It's called a headnote. But bizarrely in this case, Mr. Davis, the clerk, clerk, decided to take a bit of poetic license in his headnote. While the case did not decide that corporations are persons, in fact, if anything, it rejected the notion for the fifth time in as many years, Bancroft, in his Cliff Notes version, in his, his headnote, he wrote, quote, The defendant corporations are persons within the intent of the clause in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, which forbids a state to deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the law, end quote. And with that simple headnote, something that isn't legally even binding, 
Bancroft, the court reporter, not a judge, not an elected official, slipped into the Supreme Court's record full constitutional rights, personhood for corporations. This despite the fact that the Chief Justice specifically said his court would not address the matter, and despite the fact that every previous Supreme Court decision had explicitly denied those same rights to corporations. And by the time Bancroft, uh, John Chandler Bancroft Davis published that headnote a year later for the world to see, Chief Justice Waite was dead. But Bancroft's, so he couldn't object, but Bancroft's single sentence in that headnote that has no legal authority has enabled corporations to use personhood claims to constitutional rights to wage war against unions, against the middle class, and even against our politicians that they, didn't, that they don't like for over 120 years, culminating in the Citizens United decision before the Supreme Court in 2010. These corporations are now claiming the absolute right to buy and sell politicians and to write laws that benefit them and screw you and me. The first culprit was that rather obscure court reporter, J.C. Bancroft Davis, who with the stroke of his quill undid the intentions of our founders and set the nation down the road to corporatocracy. Please help us spread the truth about what really happened in that fateful court case in 1886 and to put an end to corporate personhood and thus stop this ruthless takeover of our democracy. trying to come up with a short list of famous politicians who hate each other, you'd be hard-pressed to find two people who fit that description better than Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich circa 1995. By the end of that year, those two men would find themselves on opposing ends of the longest government shutdown in U.S. history. It also would not be long before Newt Gingrich was leading a failed impeachment crusade to try to remove President Clinton from office. But in June 1995, those two guys held a town hall event together in Claremont, New Hampshire. Uh, it was and remains the only town hall event ever held jointly by a sitting president and the sitting speaker of the house. It was nice. And at one point on one issue, they agreed on the spot to work together on something. I think you were suggesting, I've never heard this proposed before, that maybe if we had sort of a blue ribbon commission of people that really had respect and integrity, that would look at the whole lobbying political look process. At the lo is that what you want? I thought you were talking about health care reform. No, no. You want to do it on lobby reform? In a heartbeat. I accept. Well, Mr. President. Because, because otherwise, un otherwise in this, we cannot pass lobby reform. Our campaign finance reform or anything else. I would love to have a bipartisan commission on it. That's our only chance to get anything passed. I accept. Let, let me ask you, let's shake hands right I here accept. in front of everybody. How's that? Is that a pretty good deal? I accept. I accept. Let's make a deal right now. Let's work together on this. It was very nice. They never did anything. Uh, they never worked on it. Not really. And nothing happened. 
So the let's work on getting money out of politics, bipartisan, top of the heap agreement, made in public, big showy handshake, that led to no political progress on the subject. Since then, the Supreme Court has struck down the most significant campaign finance laws in the country. Candidates now just fully outsource their campaigns to super PACs that can raise unlimited and sometimes anonymous money. Jeb Bush. Now, if you're not a billionaire who's running for president, it is almost imperative that you find yourself a billionaire because everybody knows you won't be able to compete without some daddy warbucks somewhere writing huge checks to keep you going and who knows what they get in response. It's been 20 years since that town hall in Claremont, New Hampshire. Tomorrow, that same town, Claremont, New Hampshire, will be on the political map again for the same reason, but minus Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton toothlessly promising to do something they never do. Because Claremont, New Hampshire is where tomorrow the sixth Democratic candidate for president will announce his new campaign. And he's going to Claremont, New Hampshire specifically because of that failed promise from 20 years ago. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig is the new Democrat getting into the race as of tomorrow. I got to say, the fact that he is Lawrence Lessig is almost beside the point. He's basically running an idea for president. He's running the idea of getting big money out of our democracy as a presidential campaign. He has promised to leave his job at Harvard and to jump into the race. On the pro- uh, he, he promised to do that if he raised $1 million in small donations by Labor Day. That was his self-imposed goal about whether or not he would run. He met that self-imposed goal by Labor Day, and he's not fooling around. Lawrence Lessig confirmed to us tonight by phone that he has, as of today, taken a leave from his teaching position at Harvard in order to focus on the race. And check out how he's going to do it. This is what he's promising. Lawrence Lessig says if he were to win the White House, he would single-mindedly work on that narrowly focused agenda, on that issue of getting big money out of politics and unskewing our elections. That's his whole agenda. He says he would work on that once he got that done, which he wants to do in a very specific, detailed way. Once he did that stuff, he would quit. He would hand over the presidency to his vice president and then presumably go back to being a law professor at Harvard. He's got one agenda, one item on the to-do list, basically, and then out. He would leave. I do not think that Larry Lessig will be our next president. But in a presidential race where Donald Trump is leading the Republican field by a mile and Bernie Sanders is drawing tens of thousands of people to go see him speak, even in red states, who's to say Lawrence Lessig becoming candidate number six on the Democratic side won't have some significant effect? Maybe this Claremont, New Hampshire event will get us somewhere on money and politics, unlike that pointless dog and pony show 20 years ago. Is there another condition involved here, like, for you to not run? Right. Well, if all of a sudden the leading Democratic candidates, Hillary and Bernie, say, yeah, Lessig's right, this issue of uh, corrupting influence of the inequality of the system is going to be the central issue we push, the first issue we tackle in our administration, then uh, my work's done. But if they don't, um, then I'm going to be in this race, and I'm going I'm to make a run for the nomination. So campaign finance reform is how they would describe it in Washington. That's what you're running on. 
and it's unique because you're you're saying this would basically be a referendum president. But what 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 does that mean? Um, you know, what is this one issue presidency uh, indicate? What does it mean? Because I think nobody's ever seen this before, so they've got to have a lot of questions around it. Yeah, that's right. So let's let's step back a little bit and understand what it's really about. People like to call this campaign finance reform. Those aren't words I like to use because I think that's like talking about an alcoholic as somebody with a liquid intake problem. That's a very, very sterile way to talk about a fundamental problem in our democracy. And that problem you can really understand as a problem of equality. I'm not talking about wealth equality. I'm not talking about speech equality. What I mean by that is the equality we're all supposed to have in a representative system. In a representative system, your vote, your voice, your power in that system is supposed to be the equivalent of mine. But right now we have a system where 130 families have given a half the amount of money that's been raised in the Republican primary so far. 400 people, 400 families, have given half that have been raised in all the primaries so far, which means they have extraordinary power in our political system. And what that power translates into is the ability basically to block any kind of reform. So when people like Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton talk about the amazing things they're going to do when they're elected president, I want to be the guy who says, look, the emperor is wearing no clothes. The emperor is wearing no clothes because they can't achieve any of the things they're talking about until they address this corrupting inequality first. Uh, I think a lot of progressives are asking, why don't you believe Bernie? Like, they, they, they understand why you don't believe Hillary Clinton. I mean, it's hard to argue she's for change, given that the Clintons are an enormous part of the establishment. But Bernie Sanders says he'd do it. Why don't you believe him? Oh, I believe he wants to do it. I believe Bernie because I've known Bernie. I've seen Bernie. I think Bernie has been an incredible leader for progressive ideas throughout his time in the United States Senate. He has been consistently pushing for ideas that he's now talking about. He is no triangulator. He is the real deal. The question isn't what he believes, though. The question is what he can do. And so when he runs for president, and if he's elected, and I'm not somebody who believes he can't be elected, I believe he could be elected. If he were elected, he would be elected with a mandate that's divided among five or six different issues. And when you have a divided mandate, and you stand up to Congress, and you take on the most powerful forces in our democracy, what that divided mandate is worth is nothing. It can't take on those forces and win, because they'll always have an excuse, because the system depends on them keeping their power, because, as Elizabeth Warren puts it, the system is rigged. And that power, that power, even if somebody as committed and strong as Bernie, is not going to be enough to overcome that rigged system. So what I've said is we need to have a single mandate. We need a candidate with an overwhelming mandate for one idea, for the idea of taking on that power and winning. And if we had that mandate, then maybe we could win. I don't even know if it's certain we could win. This is not an easy thing to imagine winning, but it is the best shot we've got, and it's a thousand times more likely than anything that either Bernie or Hillary could do if they won, even if they won with a landslide. The, the Republicans uh, are not known for being conciliatory. So, yes, the mandate would be clear, but it's not like they haven't ignored clear mandates before. So um, 
isn't it unrealistic to expect that the Republicans would then say, oh, a Democrat has won and he this is his most important issue. By all means, of course, let's pass the bill you'd like. Yeah. If it were a regular Democrat running as a regular politician, getting elected as a regular president, then all those moves would be possible. Republicans could stalemate and stall just as they have in this last president's administration. But look, it's not a regular Democrat running as a regular president. And it's not running on a regular sort of geeky-like issue called campaign finance. What this issue would be is the fundamental commitment of a representative democracy, equal citizens. And while Bernie Sanders, when he talks about equal equality in the context of wealth, is, in my view, talking about something very important, that big idea of equality is actually not believed in by most Americans. That's a pretty divided America when you talk about that sense of equality. But the equality I'm talking about, the equality of citizens, is something that I don't think anybody can argue against on the other side. So if the Republican Party wants to take on the mission of arguing against the idea of equal citizens, then make my day, because I would be more than happy to wage a fight, whether it took a day or a week or however long it took, to get them to finally come to the place that I think most Americans believe they should be, believing in equal citizens, and especially after we've had a campaign where this has been the central issue in the campaign. We would go to every member of Congress as they were running up to the November election. We'd be asking them, are you going to stand with the people with a people's referendum? Or are you going to vote against the people when the people's referendum is passed? And if they are going to vote against the referendum, let their constituents know about that. We would create every political pressure we could to change this from a partisan fight between Republicans and Democrats to the kind of fight it is, a fight between the insiders in Washington and people outside. Now, the way I do that is the way you've done it, Cenk. It's not to bow down to the Democratic Party at every turn. It's not to believe that the only value in America are the values the Democratic Party talks about. It's not to say that everything Democrats say is true. It's to say that I am a Democrat because I believe in the core values of the Democratic Party, but I don't think the party has lived up to those values either. I think the Democratic Party has been as much responsible for allowing the system of corruption to grow as the Republican Party. Look, the 1990s gave us Bill Clinton pushing the Democratic Party into this massive fundraising game as they bent over backwards to make Wall Street happy with what uh, the Democratic Party wanted. I think the Democrats are as much responsible for this as the Republicans. And this campaign, my campaign, would be a campaign that tried to say to Americans, look, we're not Democrats and Republicans first. We're citizens first. And as citizens, what we're entitled to is equal power in this democracy. And so use this election to demand at least that.
This show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. And if you want to dive deeper into Larry Lessig's take on the corrupting influence of money in politics, he basically wrote the book on the topic. It's called Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Congress and a Plan to Stop It. Now, of course, over the past couple of years, he's tried to implement a couple of his plans and then has been shifting his strategy as he goes. So the book might be a little out of date in that way. But of course, the underpinning issues never go out of style. So it's still worth a read. It's available on Audible and can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. Or I might add, by visiting your local library. Speaking of money and politics... Hillary Clinton is not only well-funded by Wall Street and the fossil fuel industry, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is turning to lobbyists for uh, for two of the biggest uh, private prison companies in the country. Corrections Corporation of America and the GEO Group are uh, uh, working with the same lobbyists that Hillary Clinton is working with to raise money for the 2016 presidential campaign she's running. Lee Fong of The Intercept made this discovery by looking at Hillary Clinton's list of lobbyists and bundlers for her presidential campaign. Among those funneling money to Hillary Clinton are Richard Sullivan of the firm Capital Council, documented lobbyist for the GEO Group, five employees of the lobbying and law firm Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, which received $240,000 from CCA last year, and I don't think that this is... So we've talked about when something like this comes up, This is not about saying necessarily that Hillary Clinton loves private prisons and wants to put more people in private prisons and blah, 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 blah. What this really does tell us is that these are jobs. These lobbyists are just working for whoever wants to hire them. This is not an ideological criticism. It's an example of this capitalist profit-seeking endeavor that is lobbying. The entire world of funding initiatives and ideas and campaigns and candidates is uh, for all of these hangers-on, like lobbyists, just an attempt to make as much money as possible. This is an industry that should not exist. We should have a political system. We should want to have a political system where the players involved are there because they are involved with the issues and the message. You're only complicating things. You're only corrupting things. You're only stepping further from democracy when you have these mercenary type groups that will just work for whoever. Yeah, the the private prison industry and Hillary Clinton and climate science deniers. Hey, whoever hires us, we'll say whatever they want. Yeah, one hand washes the other hand, right? Uh, It's it's sad. But uh, money in politics, you know, we need to we need complete campaign finance reform. The system is just completely broken. I think that we all feel the same. We're tired of these games. We know that we all feel the pain. To feel and act is not the same. We both know that the system doesn't work. That it So here's what Hillary Clinton proposed, 
And this is a this is a big proposal. This is a big deal, and it's got a lot of really good stuff in it. Hillary Clinton. This is, you know, she's just come out with this. This is one of the fact sheet off the Clinton website. And uh, number one, overturning Citizens United. She says to undo the harm of Citizens United and other wrong-headed campaign finance court decisions. Hillary Clinton will. One, appoint Supreme Court justices who value the right to vote over the right of billionaires to buy elections. Two, support a constitutional amendment. Next, ending secret unaccountable money in politics. Hillary Clinton says she will push for federal legislation to require effective public disclosure of public spending. Promote SEC rulemaking requiring publicly traded companies to disclose all political spending to their shareholders. And sign an executive order requiring federal government contractors to fully disclose all political spending. Now, the fact of the matter is that that SEC rulemaking could be done right now by Mary Jo White. She could, she could write, she could write uh, essentially an executive order requiring that all publicly traded companies reveal their political activity. That could happen today under the Obama administration. And an executive order requiring all federal contractors particularly the defense contractors, to disclose all of the money that they give to politicians and for lobbying, that could be done by President Obama today. There's nothing stopping uh, President Obama or Mary Jo White from doing either one of these two things. But they're not doing them, and Hillary Clinton says she will. Good on her. Amplifying the voices of everyday Americans. This is a variation on Bernie's you know, publicly funded elections. I mean, Bernie just goes right for the big enchilada. Publicly funded elections just make it easy um, Hillary has broken it out into a bunch of different pieces, but sometimes that's how you have to do it. That's how you have to get there. Anyhow, her her thing is matching funds for small donations, lower contribution limits, caps on public ma- public matching funds, and qualifying contribution thresholds. Clinton also believes we must vigorously enforce our campaign finance laws. By the way, we are not doing that right now because the SEC is locked because the th- three Republicans, three Democrats on the secure on the excuse me the FEC, the Federal Election Commission. And the three Republicans refused to even come to breakfast meetings with the three Democrats, claiming that they don't like the same food. I'm not making this up. Hillary Clinton additionally called for universal automatic voter registration, a new national standard of no fewer than 20 days of early in-person voting in every state, including weekends and evening voting opportunities, passing legislation to undo the damage of the Shelby County decision, in other words, uh, let's let's put the Voting Rights Act back into place that the Supreme Court just took down. And expanding early absentee and mail voting, providing online voter registration and establishing the principle that no one should ever have to wait more than 30 minutes to vote. in its infinite wisdom has decided they're only going to do six debates. Uh, on the other hand, the Republicans are doing approximately ten and a half million debates. Now, this is a giant problem, not uh, just because if you're for some of the candidates who have not gotten any exposure yet, you want their ideas heard. That's a real issue. 
uh, and perhaps the reason why there's only six debates, uh, but also because you're letting the Republicans frame everything. They've already had two debates. There's been no response from the Democrats. So anybody looking into how the presidential campaign is going now would think, well, all right, so on the issue of Iran, your two choices are uh, go to war with Iran immediately or go to war with Iran after a couple of days. Go to war with Iran or go nuke Iran. Those are your choices. Because the right wing has framed the choices in a massively right wing direction in their primaries. And there's been absolutely no response from the Democrats because they won't do any debates. Now, some people believe that uh, they're not doing as many debates because the DNC is backing Hillary Clinton. And since she's the front runner, they want to protect her. Uh, the people who are winning have no interest in debates because it can only hurt them. They just want to hold on to their lead. I think that is a very likely theory. I'm not going to pull a Fox News here and say, some people say it, I didn't say it. I'm just telling you that there's a lot of people who feel that. In fact, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the head of the DNC, was giving a speech in New Hampshire over the weekend. She got booed. There was a lot of um, people saying, chanting, more debates, more debates, we want debates. Uh, and then she answered by saying, what's more important, drawing a contrast with Republicans or arguing about debates? Let's focus on our mission at hand. Let's focus on our task at hand. No, no, but having the debates would draw stark contrast with the Republicans. Not having any debates, not having any voice at all, doesn't draw any contrast. So that excuse is super weak sauce. That doesn't make any sense at all. And by the way, understand this other thing. Those debates are an enormous free media. It's the equivalent of tens of million dollars in free advertising. The more debates the Republicans have, the more advertising the Republican Party has. The less debates Democrats have, the less advertising they have. The less chance they have to have a megaphone where they can speak to the American people. And they're doing all of that in what appears to be the only reasonable answer is to protect the front runner. I got bad news for them. She's not the front runner anymore. They might want to reconsider that. Bernie Sanders now winning in polls in New Hampshire and Iowa. Even though he's winning in those two critical states, and if he wins those states, he would most certainly be the front runner, he still wants more debates because he believes in his ideas. Okay, one more from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. She says, you know better than anyone that this race can't be won from a stage or through a television screen. You want to see the candidates in your living room, in coffee shops, and at forums, just like the one we're having here today. <laughs> nonsense! Complete and utter nonsense. Why is Hillary Clinton being called a frontrunner? Not because she went to more coffee shops. That's because she has over $100 million from which she could use that arsenal to do more television ads. Yes, all the donors believe, all the parties believe, all the establishment believes that, in fact, the campaigns are won on television. So please spare me. It's not like you don't know that. You know that. Now, you see, this is already incredibly outrageous. Wait till you get to the last twist. And that brings us to Larry Lessig. So, now, here's something fascinating. Um, the media has a conflict of interest that is not often talked about. Now, they cover the campaigns, but they're also the largest beneficiary of the campaigns. You see, they're the ones who get all those campaign ads, billions of dollars in campaign ads. Now, Larry Lessig is running as a Democrat. He's qualified in every conceivable way. And his main issue, his only issue is clean up the elections, clean up the corruption, get money out of politics. He frames it in the context of equality for everybody. So he wants to make sure that you get rid of gerrymandering, etc. But his driving force, and everybody knows, is get the money out of politics. 
Now, the media who conducts these debates make billions of dollars from money in politics. Now, let's see if that winds up affecting the issue. Hold on. Now, on the Republican side, Buddy Romer also wanted to get money out of politics back in 2012. He's a former governor, former congressman. I mean, you couldn't be more qualified. Uh, you could agree or disagree with his policy positions, but obviously he was qualified to run, right? They excluded him from the debates. They had all those other guys. They had random dudes. They had like a random pizza delivery guy in the race last time around. This time around, they have a car, they have a doctor, they have a failed CEO, they have a reality show contestant. But a former governor of Louisiana, they're like, oh, sorry, can't find room for you. They excluded Buddy Romer. His central plank was get money out of politics. They don't like to hear that. Now on Larry Lessig, it's okay. This one's easier because the Democrats have a very clear standard for how you get into the debates. To qualify for the debate, Democratic candidates must earn at least 1% in three national polls in the six weeks before the debate. Now, that's actually fair because you don't know this, but there's like 142 guys claiming to run as Democrats. So you need some standards. And here, this is a fair enough standard. You need to just get 1% in the national polls. And it's not easy to do, especially if you're a Harvard Law professor like Larry Lessing. Most people haven't heard of him. Uh, but he's willing to fight on those grounds. Those are fair grounds. He says, okay, I'll go get your 1% and I'll get into your debate. Okay, good, that makes sense. And hey, look at that. First poll, public policy polling, 1%. So he's on the board, okay? Uh, exactly what they asked him to do. Uh, in fact, in New Hampshire, which would be the first primary state, also at 1% registering. That's in a Monmouth University poll. So that's two different polls. Now, he has to get 1% in three national polls uh, the six weeks before the debate. Now, we're in that period now. Uh, and to give you some context, you might say, like, ah, 1%, what's the big deal? Well, Scott Walker was at 0%. And he was in all the debates. Okay. Now, that's less than 0.5%. Now, Scott Walker happened to drop out of the race coincidentally today. But there are many Republican candidates that are under 1%, 1% or less. Bobby Jindal, the list goes on and on and on. And it's not like the Democrats don't have enough room. The Republicans are doing these debates originally with 17 people. They're down to 15 now. They've got a pro uh, main debate. They've got a secondary debate. They've got all this. In, in the Democratic field, there's only six people right now. So it's not like it's overcrowded. That's not the answer. So now, are you ready for uh, what they're doing to Larry Leslie? They won't include him in the polls anymore. Think about how fundamentally unfair that is. Their standard is, if you get 1% on the polls, you get to be in the debate. They're like, God damn it, he's getting 1%. Oh, I got an idea. Let's leave his name out. So the major media organizations working with the DNC are leaving Larry Lessig's name out of the polls so people can't vote for him because they never get presented with his name. <laughs> Unbelievable. And the DNC spokesperson, Holly Shulman, says it. They say, the threshold is one agreed upon by the DNC and the networks, and it is within the six weeks leading up to the debate, so we are still in that period. And in that period, they refuse to include Larry Lessig's name in the polls. Is this fair? Is this democracy? And is it a coincidence that the two guys, one on the Republican side last time, one on the Democratic side this time, who made their central plank getting money out of politics, golly gee willikers, the same media organizations that run the debates and that conduct these polls, they decide, oh, sorry, your guys are the one guys we left out of the polling, we left your names out, and then you can't get into the debates. What a funny coincidence. Okay, here's what you need to do if you're interested in fairness and a real debate of ideas, and you believe that whoever's the best candidate will win that battle of ideas, 
you should roar at the DNC and those media organizations and say, for God's sake, we asked for a real debate. Give us one. Uh, we're the voters. We're supposed to be the people that you are uh, appealing to. We're supposed to be the people you're serving. You're supposed to be our representatives. Well, then represent our true voice. Let everybody who qualifies in the debate, put them in the polls, give everybody a fair chance. So far, the Democratic National Committee has done no such thing. And if you're a Democrat, you should be outraged by that. reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, let Lessig debate. As we've heard, Lawrence Lessig is running for president and he's running on a single issue, campaign reform. He's got a plan to lessen the influence of money in politics, but Lessig would also make voter registration automatic, get rid of photo ID requirements, and change election day to a weekend for better accessibility. He would also restructure congressional elections by creating multi-member districts and restrict government officials' ability to become lobbyists. He's certainly not the only person who thinks that no other issue is solvable until there's a radical fix to the system that doesn't just allow candidates to be purchased, demanding that they spend at least as much time fundraising as governing just to stay in office. However, despite a fast start to his campaign, Lessig is not likely to be allowed in the Democratic debates. You can sign his campaign's Let Lessig Debate petition at lessig2016.us, that's L-E-S-S-I-G 2016.us, to let the Democratic National Committee and the corporate media know you want the capital D Democratic debates to actually be lowercase d Democratic. Lessig spoke at the New Hampshire Party Convention along with the other candidates, and he's raised over a hundred million dollars in under a month from close to 10,000 people. Surely there is room for his voice in the debates. It's likely that without Lessig's presence, the foundational issue of election reform will not be addressed at all. So whether you would support him as the nominee or not, take the time to sign the petition at lessig2016.us to ensure that the other candidates and the media cannot ignore our broken system. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources and as always, this and every Every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If reforming our democracy to create fair elections matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about letting Lessig into the debates via social media so that others in your network can add their names too. Can you stand up and be counted? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Donnie Trump is for it. Barack Obama is too, as are Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. 
It is the idea of finally ending a ridiculous tax loophole that was written by and for the richest, most pampered elites on Wall Street. An obscurely titled "Carried Interest Tax Break" allows billionaire hedge fund hucksters to have their massive incomes taxed at a much lower rate than the one teachers, Main Street businesses, carpenters, and other modest income people must pay. This privileged treatment of money shufflers over people who do constructive work in our society adds to America's widening chasm of inequality. It's so unfair and unpopular that even Trump and Bush see that it has to go. So it's bye-bye loophole, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Trump can mouth all he wants, but no animal hath such fury as a hedge funder whose special tax boondoggle is threatened. Trump had barely gotten the word "unfair" out of his puffy lips before the tax loophole profiteers deployed battalions of lobbyists, PR flacks, and front group operatives to defend their precious carried interest provision. Just one group, with the arcane name of Private Equity Growth Capital Council, rushed a dozen Gucci-clad lobbyists to Capitol Hill to quote inform lawmakers about the virtues of coddling Wall Street elites with tax favors. Of course, informing meant flashing their checkbooks at key members of Congress. After all, even the loudest blast of political talk is cheap, and it's the silent sound of a pen writing out a campaign check that makes Washington world keep spinning in favor of the rich. This is Jim Hightower saying, sure enough, Representative Paul Ryan and Senator Orrin Hatch, the two lawmakers who head Congress's tax writing committees, quickly announced that the will of the people aside, there would be no repeal of the hedge fund loophole anytime soon. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of five and ten dollar monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. New York Times with an editorial about dark money and how the IRS has given up on trying to track it. That is so sad. And it's for the exact reason that I've been telling you for quite some time now. So let me go to the uh, editorial here because I think the New York Times did a fantastic job in being brave enough to call out uh, the actions of the government for what they are. Now remember, this is the Obama administration's IRS. They say the federal government has all but surrendered to the powerful, rich donors whose anonymous contributions threatened to undermine the 2016 elections. The Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, John Koskinen signaled as much on Thursday when he told the House Committee there would be no change in the tax code in 2016 to end its growing abuse by political operatives using nonprofit social welfare institutions to disguise identities of affluent campaign contributors. So let me explain to you how this works. Um, Carl Rove will set up two different organizations. One will be clearly political, 
and the other one will pretend to be a social welfare organization. Now, when you set up a social welfare, a nonprofit organization, its primary goal is supposed to be to bring about that social welfare. Now, whatever that happens to be, feeding the poor, <laughs> Republicans feeding the poor, feeding the poor, that's a good one. No, uh, they claim it's for some purpose or another. Sometimes the Koch brothers will say, oh, it's for health care, while they're trying to destroy health care, and it's all political. But according to the IRS, this is not true. That's not how the law is written. The law says it has to be primarily for the mission you said that it was. Now, you could have some incidental costs, a stapler here and a poster there, that are not necessarily going directly to that cost. But the IRS, in their incredible cowardice, because they don't want to offend the dark money uh, that's going to both parties, but especially the Republican Party, because they'll get called liberal, right, uh, says, okay, 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 as long as you're doing 51% non-political activities, actual social welfare activities, things where you're actually trying to help other people, we'll call the other 49% uh, as part of your mission overall, even if it's completely and deeply political. That's not in the law. They did that. It is a huge benefit to the rich that are pouring in this dark money that now we can't track because they're using these organizations. So now more details from the New York Times. The IRS has been increasingly timorous on this issue ever since House Republicans opened partisan hearings into complaints that IRS officials have been biased against conservative political groups that claim tax exemptions as nonprofit social welfare groups. I told you. I told you that's what the whole so-called IRS scandal was about. And it turns out that's exactly what it's about. There was no scandal. It was shown over and over again. The IRS actually looked into liberal groups as much as conservative groups. In fact, they took action against liberal groups more than they did against conservative groups. But it doesn't matter. The Republicans screamed and screamed, Oh, the IRS is liberal. The IRS is targeting conservatives. And then Fox News talking about it 24-7. And what did the IRS do? They do what you know oftentimes happens in the Democratic Party, and in this case in the government, also happens with government officials quite often, with bureaucracies. Oh, my God, don't hit me again. Don't hit me. I'm so sorry. Here, here, do whatever you want with dark money. Who cares? 49%. And by the way, of the 49% and 51%, I'm not even figuring that out. I don't have time. I know. I give up. I give up. That's what this New York Times editorial is about, how they have given up in mass. Saying, you do whatever the hell you want. At best case scenario, they will investigate in 2017. I got news for you. That's a year after the election. In other words, open season. There is no end to this. Dark money as far as I can see. Let me give you two more from the quotes from the New York Times because they are really great in this editorial. They say, Citizens United decision in 2010 that ended the limits on campaign spending by corporations and unions. Now, since 2006, when only $5.2 million was spent uh, by exempt organizations that do not disclose donors, spending increased, spending increased 60-fold to more than $300 million in 2012, 2012 presidential cycle, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. An even bigger infusion expected in 2016 from big money donors shielded by the social welfare fiction. They're not social welfare groups. New York Times is calling out. It's a fiction. They've already increased it 60-fold since Citizens United, and they're going to increase it even more. Wolf-Pack.com. 
If you don't get the money out of politics, look at what they're doing. They're pouring it in by the buckets, by the millions, the hundreds of millions of dollars. The IRS is throwing up their hands going, <laughs> I'm so scared of conservatives. I'm not even going to look to see where the money is coming from, whether they're actually using it for social welfare purposes or they're using it completely for politics. I don't care. I'm going to run for the hills. They, they've swamped uh, politics with money. They've bought all of our politicians. This is the Obama administration. Remember the guy with the placards that said, change? What change? What change? And by the way, I asked out of all the people running, both on the Republican and Democratic side this year, what are you going to do to get money out of politics? You can tell me all you want, and this applies to everybody across the board. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to get money out of politics. So some even say, oh, I'd like to get an amendment to get money out of politics. Yes, but what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to get that amendment? If you say, ah, oh, I, mean, I kind of like it, well, that sounds like Obama. And then later Obama says, oh yeah, change, change, ah, fuck it, I didn't mean change. No, you do whatever the hell you want, pour in the dark money, it doesn't matter, I got a ton of money too, and I won, and I love this system, I'm not going to change this system. These <laughs> plankers should have said, stay the same, I love this system, it made me president and incredibly rich and powerful. So for all the new candidates, spam into lip service, what are you going to do about it, okay, what are you going to do to the IRS, what are you going to do to get the amendment passed? Uh, to get money out of politics. Wolf-pack.com. We're doing something about it. We're mounting up. And we got warriors out there fighting the fight. We've already got to pass in four states. We're going to get past it in a hell of a lot more than that. Finally, the New York Times ends their editorial by saying, it is a gross insult to taxpayers to make them underwrite the brazen evasions of campaign operatives bundling dark money. The abuse is compounded by the latest IRS retreat from its responsibility. And by the way, look at that. Even if you're a conservative or you're a libertarian, do you like taxpayers being abused? This is all done off our back, okay? It's the rich and the powerful that are buying the politicians and using the IRS to their advantage and screwing over the regular American taxpayers. That's why we do have conservatives and libertarians also inside Wolfpack. I happen to be progressive. There are people in the organization who are progressive. But there are people from all across the country who believe in this because 96% of Americans have had it up to here. They're sick of it. They know it's bullshit. And they know that uh, these are legalized bribes. And there's nothing anybody in Washington is doing about it. So screw Washington. We're going to go around Washington. We're going to go to the states. We're going to go to the states one by one until they call for a convention to get an amendment. Otherwise, it's hopeless. Look at this. You put your hope into Obama changing the system, and Obama just put up the white flag saying, no, 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 I'm too scared. I'm too scared. I don't ever want to change the system. Well, we got a different idea. Whether Washington likes it or not, we're going to change. Are you a warrior enough? Or are you going to sit on your couch, or are you going to get up right now and fight back against this and win? We've already won in four states. We're going to win in 30 others, and we're going to get that convention. Are you... Willing to fight for democracy? Are you willing to be uh, what is in essence a founding father again to get back our democracy, which has been lost to the elite and the powerful here? Well, I'm not in the business of white flags. I'm not in the business of surrender. So hell yeah, we'll fight back. Come join us. Do whatever you can. Become a member. Become a volunteer. But get up and fight. Wolf-Pack.com
I binge listened to the best of the left this week. And one of the episodes called for ideas, so I have an idea, or maybe a rant, depends who you ask. In 2005 or so, I started working with groups who uh, didn't want touchscreen voting machines in New York. New York had lever machines, and they were no longer manufactured and had to be replaced. Blackboxvoting.org was full of horror stories on hacking elections with those touchscreen machines. In my view, the gold standard was developed in Oregon. Every voter is sent a ballot and has two weeks to study it, understand it, fill it in, mail it back. No babysitters needed, no time to stand in line, no need to juggle any sort of transportation issues, no time, no problems for handicapped people getting there or struggling with machines. Do a few of these ballots get filled out by spouses or caretakers? Well, probably, but those are few. They are lost in the numbers because Oregon has fantastic voter participation. So I became more aware of elections and issues of voter registration. And after retiring, I started working as a lowly elections inspector. So I'm one of those little old ladies who asked voters to sign the book. I thank people for voting. I applaud first-time voters. I hand out stickers who those wear them and on and on. 16 hours for any general election. Yes, I'm paid, but I do it because America. Well, actually, this is my big idea. Board of election workers should not register people for political parties. They should register, ta-da, voters. Political parties want members. Fine, register them. That's your job. Politicians cannot use taxpayer-funded offices or phones or staff to solicit political donations. And yet we fund offices and pay workers to collect membership information for parties so they can gerrymander election districts. That is crazy. Board of election officers collect information on party membership, record the information and report it to the parties, create ballots for each of the parties for their primary elections, restrict who can vote in primaries based on party affiliation, create books for members of each party to sign based on that affiliation, make a list of party members with addresses and phone numbers available to those who ask for them, and in doing so, earn taxpayer dollars that would be better spent on getting more people registered to vote. Need to hold a primary? Fine. Just let anyone who is registered and want to vote, vote. If there are 17 Republicans and four Democrats, voters would have to narrow that down to one choice. It would take a lot of thought to do that. The new court rulings against gerrymandering are heartening, but I still say that allowing public workers to register members of political parties is an abuse of public funds. I don't know how to change this or even how to convince more than a few people that it should be changed. Politicians have no interest in this, but rather look wide-eyed and stricken when they understand me. I feel it's important. I feel it has to stop. So thanks for listening, Jay, and thanks for all you've taught me. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Sally from San Francisco. I was so glad to hear in your show on the drug war the description of what has happened in Portugal. The decriminalization of drugs in that country is proof that a public health approach to drug use and abuse would not only be more effective, but it would save lives, communities, and money by shifting resources in our economy away from punishment to intervention and treatment. However, 
One comment made in the show regarding Adderall treatment for ADHD and its similarity to meth made me think about something that rarely gets talked about in the conversation. The dose of Adderall folks use for ADHD is tiny compared to a dosage that makes you high with meth. Truth is, and always has been, not just what people use, but how much and when. So I was thinking to really address the issue, we need to talk about moderation and how people learn to practice it. As a psychologist of children and youth, I find that one of the ways adolescents learn to handle risk, sex, drugs, rock and roll, cars, video games, etc., is by learning through experience. Most of us can look back and remember with chagrin perhaps at least one bleak morning puking uncontrollably into the toilet. I don't know about the rest of you, but this doesn't happen to me anymore, despite the fact that in my house I have a considerable amount of alcohol and could drink enough to have that very same experience tomorrow. Why don't I do that? Because I've learned through experience that to be moderate makes me happier and healthier. And I still actually enjoy drinking a bit here and there when I can, and it's appropriate. Most young people who overdo things do so because they're in the first stages of exposure. Okay, so you might ask, what does this have to do with the war on drugs? Well, if we take the premise that all drugs are bad and that we should, we should always say no to drug use, what ends up happening is that once a person doesn't say no, they step over the line from white to black with no sanctioned way to learn how to navigate moderation. To make matters worse, plenty of informal ways to learn exist through peers that, for better or worse, only lends peer-obtained information more credibility. Our legal response is similarly black and white. And the fact is that punishment does not teach people how to use dangerous things moderately. We seem to know this and have different policies regulating other dangerous risks. Driving violations, for example, lead to education around risk and smart behavior. Traffic school. Have you ever heard of low-level drug arrests leading first to education on how to use substances responsibly? I haven't. Well, in some places, there might be some kind of drug education for first penalties. So often, what is taught is the extreme of the worst that can happen. Mess teeth, example, for example. And really, not much around how to be moderate and how to figure out what to use when or not, as the case may be. It's as if traffic school consisted only of images of horrible, disfiguring accidents. And I've never seen that in the couple of times I've had to attend. The last time, a great comedian helped address texting while driving that I still chuckle over every time I'm tempted to just take a look. But anyway, um, the sheer amount of drugs consumed in the United States each year is really proof that most users aren't addicts, don't die, and somehow manage to imbibe with moderation. They have to be able to use casually without horrible consequences or the numbers would simply be much worse. Ironically, the worst outcomes of drug use arise not from the substance itself, but from the risk of jail and subsequent impact of arrest. And the piece you played regarding the inaccuracy regarding risks around drugs is actually borne out by the numbers. Here's the thing. While inherent risk may be higher with some harder drugs, it's certainly not the case with marijuana that most young people use. And I can tell you, my clients tell me that Just Say No campaigns mostly serve to prove to young people that what adults and law enforcement say about drugs, all drugs, is a lie. In my practice, I always believe honesty is best. Why do people use drugs? Because they're pleasurable. Why must we learn to be careful? Because at higher dosages and in certain circumstances, they can be dangerous or have negative effects. 
explicit teaching regarding what is safe and what isn't and teaching skills and using the experience of drugs to help develop judgment would go a long way towards a better approach than denial and punishment. Outcomes of social experiments like treatment programs in Seattle and decriminalization in Portugal gives us a clear path to follow. Again, thanks so much for the show. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, jay at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, all I have for you today is a little technical update. I hope that sounds exciting. Get ready, here it comes. It could be important for some of you. So I have been doing a little bit of a spring cleaning here on the back end of the show, uh, all the technical details of how it works. And the best case scenario is that you didn't notice anything change. In the past couple of months, I had just gotten a little flurry of technical problems uh, reported to me. You know, hey, this app hasn't updated your show in a while. Hey, I can't download the new episode. Hey, when I try to use the fast forward rewind buttons, I, you know, it, it glitches on me. What's going on? Uh, you know, people saying like, hey, what did you change the format of the show or something? It doesn't work anymore. So, with that little, you know, flurry of problems happening, uh, what I did was totally overhauled the back end, the way the show is delivered to you. And hopefully what that means is that a lot of those problems are just simply going to go away. Uh, there was a, an old system in place, it had some bugs in it. I took out the old system entirely. And now I'm using just a clean, pristine new system that's totally up to date and should work perfectly. So if you had any problems, keep in mind that those problems may simply go away now. Whatever downloading problems or updating or anything along those lines, those problems may disappear. However, there is one compatibility issue that I cannot deal with on a universal basis, and that is for anyone listening to the show with any device that is not made by Apple. So that's iTunes on a computer, even if it's a window computer, you know, if you're using iTunes, or if you have an iPhone or an iPod or whatever else they make. If you are listening on one of those devices, you should be good to go. And if you are listening on anything else and you are having a problem, Nine times out of 10, maybe more, maybe 99 times out of 100, the problem is that you are accidentally, through no fault of your own, subscribed to a version of the feed for this show, which is intended for Apple devices. And now this is another legacy system that was put in place, if you can believe it, 10 years ago. Keep in mind, I've been putting out this show since before smartphones were even really a thing. So it made perfect sense at the time. You'll just have to take my word for it. And so there's a version of the show that is made specifically for Apple devices. I think it's a very good thing to have. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think the people who use that version appreciate it and, and use that extra functionality. But if you are on, uh, say, an Android device and you accidentally end up with this uh, version of the show intended for Apple devices, 
it's probably going to work okay, but not great. So if you're having any kind of problems, the most recent one was a guy uh, wrote in saying, hey, when I try to like skip ahead in the show, I get bumped all the way back to the beginning. And the solution to that is to make sure you are subscribed to the feed intended for totally universal compatibility. It just delivers an MP3 file. It'll work on any electronic device you can imagine pretty much. And so what you need to do only if you are experiencing any kind of a problem, if you have no problem, there's nothing to do. But if you're having any kind of a problem and you're using any sort of advice like an Android or anything like that, simply go to bestofleft.com, click the big subscribe button at the top, and it gives you all the different varieties of ways that you can subscribe to the show. And one of them is to subscribe with an RSS feed and a little description of it says it is totally universal. You copy and paste the URL, you put it into whatever app or device or program or whatever you are using to subscribe to the show. And that feed will give you the totally universal copy of the show and any glitches you are experiencing will almost certainly go away. So I certainly hope that very, very few of you were having any problems before, and with any luck, even fewer of you will have any problems going forward. So happy listening. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're too